Now that I've emerged from detox, we can once again begin the 42 to Doomsday podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Mark. I'm David. I'm Richard. And in the shadows of Christmas, we've once again gathered at Dave's place to talk all things Doctor Who. That's right, says uh, Rob hyperventilated again at the beginning of the episodes. We are indeed back, despite saying last year we would never come back again. Hi, boys, how are we? We're good. It's Christmas time, it's summer, the cricket's on, and it's time for a 42 to Doomsday Christmas special. What more do you want in December? It's a new holiday tradition. It is, actually. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. So, uh, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about lots of Doctor Who, so uh, should we crack on? Okay. Let's talk about the elephant in the room first, shall we? 2018 series. Dave's the one who does the regular podcast. He does about indeed. It, so. So, so if you're my elongated thoughts, check out the Doctor Who show hot takes. <laughs> However, <laughs> very condensed version, Dave. I think that season 11 was fine. Nothing more, nothing less. I think that there were definitely four episodes I thought were really good, really, really enjoyable, and they're the ones that I've said to some of you guys who are being a bit hit and miss with them. You know, make sure you check them out. Um, and I really did enjoy those four. That said, I'd, for the benefit of the listeners, those ones were uh, Rosa, Demons of the Punjab, Kablam, and the Witchfinders. Yep, I thought they're all quite good episodes. I wouldn't say that any of them are instant classics, though. I don't think there has been a really, really classic episode in this series. But nor do I think there's been an absolute stinker. There hasn't been a Fear Her or a Death in Heaven or anything like that. Or even something like Love and Monsters, which has divided fandom and got everyone engaged. Um, the closest that we've had is whether you are for or against the frog in the, uh, in the penultimate episode. You're looking at me as though you haven't watched that one, Mark. You have no idea what we're talking about, do you? We'll keep talking. We'll keep talking. When the quality of a CGI frog is the most divisive thing in fandom, that's probably saying that it's not the most exciting series. I haven't hated it, but as I say, it's not full of classics. And there hasn't been that episode that I think really landed and allowed Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor to land. Did it meet your expectations in terms of what you thought going into it? No, it was probably a bit below. I I have enjoyed the simpler and more straightforward episodes. As I've always said, I want Doctor Who just to be fun episodes in time and space, and this is basically that. But some of them are very underwritten. Some of them are very heavy on the clunky dialogue, the long exposition scenes, and that that has detracted. But but there are some good episodes in there. And it was good to see Robin the Frog in that episode just doing a cameo. (laughs) Halfway up the (laughs) stairs. So, uh, yeah, they're my thoughts as someone who's watched all of it. And I think the one who's watched the next amount is Rob, who's watched 95%. I have. I've uh, I stopped uh, 20 minutes into the last episode um, simply because I had to go to work and I haven't had time in this busy uh, week or two before Christmas to catch up. Like Dave, I've been a little bit underwhelmed with the series thus far. Um, I think that, as you say, Dave, it is, it is underwritten. I think the lack of a classic villain for Jodie the Playoff uh, has been a mistake. I mean, I can understand why Chibnall has sort of gone for the sort of more basic approach. He's, he's, it's a reaction against what Moffat was up to for four or five years. Um, but the lack of a, a, you know, a classic villain for her to play off against, like Tom Baker did in his first series and like Colin Baker did in his first series, um, meant for me that she was sort of just floating around a little bit nebulous as a character. What, what is she reacting against? You know, the dialects or the Cybermen. I think there's a missed opportunity there to sort of help define her character. At the moment, she just feels like uh, someone who goes is on an apology tour of the galaxy and is 
not really leading the show at the moment. But overall, the quality of the series, certainly the, the, the visuals are, are fantastic. Uh, the music is very good. I like the theme, uh, the, the rearrangement of the theme tune at the, tune at the start. Uh, Graham is clearly the standout character for me in the, in the show. Mm-hmm. And, and the woman who plays Yaz, unfortunately, has been given very little to do other than stand around and ask typical tropey Doctor Who questions of the Doctor. So, yeah, it, it's, it's more middling than anything else, the series. I certainly agree with you on the visuals. I just want to add, and I've said this to a number of people, and they've sort of agreed, it's lacked that real impact episode that each Doctor gets in their first series to really sort of arrive. Um, Christopher Eccleston in Dalek, Tennant with uh, Anthony Stewart Head in School Reunion, or even you know, with the devil in Satan Pit. You know, yeah. it, it's lacking one of those for her. But the person who's seen the next most is Richard with 65%. Uh, would be about right. I've been a little bit more piecemeal. Uh, I think if you count the one I fell asleep in front of I've watched seven which one did you fall asleep in front of? Uh, the one with the spiders spiders in an empty hotel? yeah that one um, <laughs> and I, I actually don't remember very much about it at all so I think I must have gone off quite early So you, you, you missed nothing there's an empty hotel there's some spiders they shot it in right. uh, well thanks, thanks for that I don't have to go You're really selling that one now. Uh, no so I, I've watched the first three I've watched the last one and I watched the two pseudo-historicals um, along the way. So I watched Demons of the Punjab and I watched The Witchfinders. Have there been any you really enjoyed? The three historicals, I think, were probably the three I got the most out of. I thought the Rosa Parks one was quite good. Mm-hmm. Fell away from me a bit at the end. Um, I think having the Doctor and Companions on the bus. I get why they did it, and I thought that was a really nice moment of Graham saying he didn't want to be a part of it. But I think having the Doctor and Companions right in the middle of what was going on, I think, actually weakens it a bit. I quite liked Demons of the Punjab. I thought that was very good. I don't really think the Doctor really did much, but... Uh, no, well, that's the problem with any real historical. I mean, it's the same in the Aztecs, yes. it's the same in the Crusades. <clears throat> you sort of just rock up, observe, and get out. Well, that's the thing. And, and really, I think, just, just feeding off the, the sort of bland nature, um, the, the Doctor is kind of really just there in that one. I mean, look, she has a bit more to do in The Witch Hunters. That was probably more... That, that was just fun. The witch yes. hunters, I think, and look, a lot of that was probably due to Alan Cumming. I, I thought he clearly was having a great time doing that. My Nubian prince. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I watched the finale, so... What did you think of the finale? I must admit, I tore it to shreds in our review. Look, it was entertaining probably for the 48 minutes or whatever it was while I watched it. I'd be struggling to go away and think of any really strong plot moments or anything from it. The best moment in it was probably the conversation where Graham says he's going to try and kill Tim Shaw if he gets the chance, I think. And then shoots him in the foot, apparently. Yes. And then moves on. Yeah, because he's the better man. But, with, with, uh, with Tim Shaw doing his impression of Siobhan from, uh, from Blake's <laughs> <laughs> Um I got a real sort of first season Hartnell vibe from it. And, and it's probably not helped by the fact that Bradley Walsh, i.e. Ian, is the strongest, uh, I think, the strongest character in it. Mm. Yep. I, I don't know. In some ways, look, it's, it's hard because I'm a 40-something white male who grew up watching Tom Baker so in some ways I'm the enemy Uh, I'm going to be another 40 something white male saying this show isn't made for me anymore as a Tom Baker fan did you enjoy or were you annoyed by the homage to the pirate planet it was okay but look it wasn't anything special and so the one who's watched the least of it is uh, Mark with 30% and now for our next topic (laughs) oh come on come on Mark alright okay so I've watched up to Rosa right and then I stopped Including Rosa. Including Rosa, yeah. Did you enjoy any of them? I thought Rosa was quite good, but in terms of the villain, or the middling punk, as I called in the motivations, <laughs> that were useless. Look, yeah. on the positives, look, for the three episodes, I saw the music was great. 
Bradley Walsh definitely is a key standout for me. I can't work out whether Jodie Whittaker is completely miscast or the writing is so bad she, she hasn't got anything to hang her character on. I hate to word, use the word gravitas, but she doesn't have any. She doesn't really grab the scene. She doesn't really grab the scene, you know. And um, the nail for the coffin for me was Twat, last year's Christmas special. And I think now it's just basically the lid is on the new series. I'm just not interested. I can't do it anymore. Okay. What is it about it that you don't that has forced you to stop to stop watching that? Um, I'm just not enjoying it. It's trying to get that balance. Moffat was too clever by half, and the scripts hardly made sense. And this is completely dumbed down now. You know, Doctor Who used to be made for the intelligent eight-year-olds, and now it's pitched to obviously very young audiences. And if they're enjoying it, great. But to be honest, there's better. There's other better TV I'm enjoying watching. Made a decision to stop watching it. I was going to say, given it's a reboot and they've had a change at night, and I know there's been a lot of commentary about the fact it's now on Sunday night TV mm. and whatever. This is now a 13 or 14 year old franchise. Mm. So surely a complete reboot really is the only way to keep it fresh to get that new generation in. But, but sorry, which it has done effectively. I mean, the ratings have been significant. Yeah, but the AI's been down. That's what they talk about, is that the ratings have started off very high, but they have petered down by 30 or 40% since it started, which we knew was going to happen yeah, anyway. Yeah. If you look at the AIs compared to the last couple of years, despite what we thought about Moffat, they all was seemingly popular, mm. but the AIs are low compared to what they were. But does the BBC care if people tune in next week? No. If or as long as? As, as long as, yes. yes. Mm. And as long as they get the overseas sales, that's, yeah. Rob, what were the standouts for you? I mean, you've seen most of the series. Yeah, I've seen most of the series. Um, I really enjoyed Rosa when I first watched it, but having looking back on it, I thought it was very emotionally manipulative, and mm. it made her to be a real saint, a real secular saint, and I thought that was a bit, a bit too much. It was too much of a one-dimensional portrayal of her. But I suppose if you watch it and then you go away and think, okay, well, this is something I don't know very much about, mm. and you think, well, I'll go and do some actual reading on it. Yeah, well, that's great. Which, which I guess is what, which I, I, think which is what I felt it was pitched at. Yes. It was yes. pitched at yes. the kids to go away and think, yeah. well, okay, I might actually go and do a bit more reading about it. No, that's yeah. fine. It was like us reading the Marco Polo novel and going, yes. I want to learn more about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. But if, if this episode thinks that Rosa Parks' legacy is to have her name plonked onto an asteroid or a rock in space. I think they made a mistake. Mm. So I enjoyed that, but I've got problems with it. Demons of the Punjab and um, It Takes You Away are my two highlights. Now, I know you've got real problems with It Takes You Away, Dave, but, and especially the end with the frog. I enjoyed the frog bit at the end. I thought that was just, you know, Doctor Who can can do weird and wacky and strange. I'll have to go and watch it, yeah. Like that. Yeah. And mm. I, thought that, I thought that scene was particularly well shot. And I thought, you know, uh, Jodie Whittaker's uh, kiss farewell to the frog was just bonkers. <laughs> I enjoyed it. it and like yes, the frog puppet or CGI was terrible. I just think, I, I personally thought it worked. I enjoyed Demons of the Punjab. I thought it was very uh, affecting to watch. Uh, there was that Aztec's inevitability to everything. My issues with It Takes You Away are that I really don't know where I stand on at the moment. I think I went in expecting something. Mm. It started to go down that path. It was very M. Night Shyamalan, very like The Village or Signs or something like that. Yeah. And I wasn't really prepared for it taking that whole different direction. And when I first saw The Frog, I was just taken too far out of it. And it could be that now I've sort of, you know, banked that and mm. put that into the mix. I might appreciate it more. That's, that's the one episode I really do feel I need to go back. My favourite two were... Demons of the Punjab, which I think we've all mentioned as being quite good, yeah. but Kablam really stood out for me. I thought that was a really good, fun sci-fi adventure. Did that rate for you at all? Not particularly. I mean, it was enjoyable enough. I thought it was more, an episode that was more middling than anything else. Um, but there, certainly there were elements there that um, 
that uh, I could see where the appeal was. But overall, I, I didn't think too much of it. Okay, no, it was one of the ones I liked. I mean, the two real low, low ones for me were Spiders in an Empty Hotel yeah. and the Waitangi Conundrum, whatever it was, um, which was just tedious. Yes, exactly, yeah. That's the one with the little animal running around eating the ship, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was that was poor. That was very poor. That that was probably very poor. One of my, that's probably the worst one for me. And I have a lot of problems with episode 10, but most of those are to do with the writing rather than the visuals. I, I'm still not quite sure about that. Have you seen Kablam, Richard? No. Oh, okay, well, I, I recommend you both check that one out, mm. if you can bring yourself to, Mark. You're shaking your head again, Mark. No, no, no. That's, I'll, I'll, when I get through about the 13 other shows I'm watching, I'll, I might do it. But at the moment, it looks like he's in pain, poor mate. Just contemplate. No, I'm listening that. to what you guys are saying, and um, it's you're talking about Kermit the Frog and things like that. It's not so, really inspiring me to watch it. So, to pick up on a point that Mark made about whether Jodie Whittaker is badly written or miscast, mm. I think that she's badly written. Mm. I don't think she's really been given a character to uh, latch onto and get her teeth into. There have been moments of really good stuff, but. Mm when the best of Doctors got after a full season is there were good moments. I don't think that's enough. Mm. But but I don't know what else anyone could have done with the dialogue. And I mentioned before the uh, Pirate Planet comparison. Mm. And although, you know, you don't want everyone to do it as Tom Baker, and you don't everyone could do it as Tom Baker, you compare Tom Baker discovering that someone's been destroying planets en masse mm. with Jodie Whittaker discovering the same thing, and they're not in the same galaxy. No. No. I'm just wondering, is... The issue with her, the, her character, is it Chibnall's approach that he wants to have a character that's as broadly appealing as possible, thus is not giving her characteristics, say, like uh, Capaldi, who was initially alienating. Uh, some people regard his first series as being particularly alienating. Yeah, me. I'll put my hand up. Yeah. Um, so if he's, would, would, could we say that Chibnall's trying to get away from that issue and make her as broadly appealing as possible by not giving her something that you can latch onto? It's I, just a performance. Yeah, look, I've only seen three episodes, right? But the way she was approaching it to me was like David Tennant and Drag. Tennant's portrayal for me is one of rapidly diminishing returns. If I somehow yeah, see it on television, you know, I skip, I, I skip on to, uh, seeing him, my teeth instantly just go yeah. on edge. Well, I used to like him at the time, but I think, I think the BBC's perception of David Tennant was so popular that every doctor should be like that. Going yeah, it's, forward. it's funny because I didn't really. You know, talking earlier about having sort of the big moment where you, you know, if you mm. want to use a buzzword, connect with each doctor. Yeah, I actually didn't get that out of the ones I watched out of this season, no. and I actually never really got that with Tennant, to be honest. Mm. Um, I did have it with with Christopher Eggleston, and, and yeah, it was the obvious one. It was Dalek. Yeah, I thought the series had meandered a bit to that point, and I did have it with Matt Smith as well. I wasn't. I must admit, I found Matt Smith's era quite. Uh, Challenging? Yeah, both of those words. A bit from column B. But uh, I did have that sort of connect moment with him, and it was actually of all stories in The Beast Below. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. It was the scene where he's sitting there on the bench just deconstructing when he's watching the little girl standing there crying. Hmm. And he sits there and he deconstructs why why that's happening and why nobody's paying any attention to it. Hmm. And I actually sat and I watched that and I thought. Actually, this this dude's actually really good because I've sort of been a bit fifty fifty about the eleventh hour. But anyway, I digress. But I didn't have that any moment like that in this in the episodes I watched. Really, yeah, and, and that's the problem. There hasn't been that real just punch episode. Mm, no, I'll be honest with you. I'm really missing um, Peter Capaldi. I know you served up a lot of rubbish, but he sort of kept. Kept the show together. He kept the show together, even though it was served up with, you know, said a lot of crap. Where first two episodes put me off a bit. They, they were very much set up episodes, though. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Look, I know. You have the introduction I know one, and then you have the one I where just, they get yeah. the TARDIS. But 
yeah, uh, I just her crashing into a train, surviving. I thought, well, hold on, hasn't he seen the Gopolis? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you post, know, it's post regeneration energy, Mark. You're going for the first what is it, twelve hours like or something? Maybe. Anyway, <laughs> we've talked a lot about Jodie Whittaker. What about Chris Chibnall? What do we think of his writing? His his approach, his setup to the series. I think that he has a tin for dialogue based on this series. Mm. Uh, all the episodes that I've mentioned have been my favourites are not Chibnall episodes. Mm. And even the ones that I've watched have suffered from that overwriting, that exposition stuff, where literally, time and time again, the Doctor would sit there and go, well, so this is happening, so in a moment I'll do this, and then I'll go and do this, and then this happens, and then this happens. And you go, just shut up and do it! Yeah. Mm. <laughs> just shut up and do it! <laughs> well, yeah. and then explain in the last two minutes what actually happened, like they used to do in the old days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very quickly. <laughs> Do we, do we mind the fact that the TARDIS is so crowded with, you know, four people? Is that a problem? Uh, well, it is for Yaz because she's barely in anything. Yeah. That's happened at other times. I mean, you went through Hartnell where they would write a companion out basically each week. Yeah, and we all know about the Davison stuff where either, yes. either Turlow or Teen would spend two episodes locked away somewhere. Yeah, yes, it was asleep. Yeah. yeah. Now, Chip Bill's a Doctor Who fan, so he, he, it looks like he was sitting there going, hmm four people in the TARDIS. I wonder how that would work. We know how that works. One of them gets written out every story. Mm. So why do it if you know it's... It sounds like he's setting himself up to fail. And that's happened. And eight times out of ten, it's been Yaz who's just there. Yeah. It's amusing. I mean, you, you watch it, that clip of him uh, back in 86, 87. Oh, he's, yeah. He's lecturing to Pippin Jane Baker about <laughs> how Doctor Who should be and, and where it's all gone wrong. And then you watch... 30, and you think, well, 30 years later... He had strong opinions then. He grew up with the series. He, he's aware of its strengths and weaknesses. And yet he, his approach definitely plays to the weaknesses more, more often than not. But then again, that surely must be planned. I mean, they obviously wanted a lighter approach to the yes, show. no doubt. To, no to doubt. make it that lighter Sunday night viewing that, you know, people thinking about going back to work tomorrow or whatever. Don't want anything so to think they heavy. don't want to be challenged mm. um, to a point. They more just want to be entertained. Yeah, I reckon Pip and Jane have had the last laugh, though, because <laughs> the Rotorua conundrum would have been vastly improved with the Vervoids walking around, so... <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Uh, another gap yet has uh, been mm. foisted upon us. Um... I mean, that's just pathetic, really. I mean, and you cannot spin it any other way as that the the BBC have chosen not to do it. Mm. The BBC have got the money to make a series of Doctor Who. They have made a deliberate choice. They want to make something else. Now, that's fine, but don't pretend it's not a deliberate, financially driven choice. Mm. If they wanted to make Doctor Who, they could. It is a budget decision that they've decided they want to save the money and spend it somewhere else. Well, either that or they just don't want to make a series. But I don't understand. I mean, if the show is... And I'm not disagreeing with you, Dave. I don't understand... The approach. If if it's Chibnall not being able to write scripts or corral enough writers to do it, what are you doing in the job? What are you doing in the job then? Or if it's the BBC not finding the money, well, surely the, the show generates enough income itself anyway. And look, I have no problem with the BBC saying, uh, we like Doctor Who, we want it to be on now and then, but we have higher priorities and we're going to spend our money next year somewhere else. Perfectly reasonable decision. They're not Doctor Who fans in the way that we are, that would love a series every year. They're an organisation that's there to do something that's fine. Don't pretend it's for any creative reason, though, or no, any no. existential reason. It's because they don't want to spend their budget on Doctor Who next year. That's fine. They're spending it on something else. If they wanted to, they'll spend it on Doctor Who and not make something else. Mm. That's a decision, a deliberate one they've made. Uh, we haven't mentioned Tosin Cole as Ryan. I have to say, he's actually been probably my favourite character in the whole thing. I think he actually has put in a really interesting performance. And he's lifted a lot of scripts. And, and the difference between him and um, Yaz is that when he's underwritten, he at least puts in a lot... And, and gets some little subtleties and some interesting points out of his performances, was I think when Yaz is underwritten, she's just there. No, I, I agree 100%. I think 
even though I, I, he's a young actor, I, I understand. So I, I'm not a hundred percent sold on all of his performances. Not for sure. But in terms of what he's giving on screen, yeah, he's he has much more of a presence. And as you say, he he is giving his all uh, in those scenes, and he's much more noticeable and engaging than Yaz, who I think the actress is a perfectly fine young actress, mm. but she's either. She's just not given enough, I don't think, to do to make any sort of impact. So, sort of uh, Mark Strickson versus Matthew Waterhouse, are we saying? Or? Well, it's brutal, but it's true, I think. To yeah, Art Richard, Tosin Cole does remind. I mean, he's not Mark Strickson. Mark Strickson is a phenomenally good actor. He's, he's, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. But Tosin Cole is trying to do that yeah. Mark Strickson thing of well, as long as I'm on screen, what can I be doing? Yes. You know, is there something I can be doing in the background? Is there a look yeah. I can give? He's doing that sort of thing. Where I think Yaz is sort of well, the script says that I don't do anything. I'll just sit here then. Yeah. The gain of Doctor Who. <laughs> Sorry, just I was going to say that like exactly. Yeah. The only way is up, not and, with Yaz. And the fellow who plays Graham, why is it that he's got more impact than the lead actor? I don't know. Is it? Is it even? He's better written. He's funny. He's interesting. He's insightful. He's warm. You think of some of those wonderful moments, like the moment when he says goodbye to the brother in Punjab. He knows this guy's off to be killed in about 10 minutes' time, mm. and he has to hold it together and, and can't do it. His relationship with Ryan, the way he's remembering you know, his dead wife... Yeah, that was really good. He, he gets yeah. really good moments. He gets to be the one who cracks the jokes. Mm. You know, he gets the one to make the comments about, oh, I haven't had a sandwich in three days. He actually has a character. Yeah. Yeah. He, he feels like a real person. Jodie doesn't. Jodie doesn't get that sort of stuff. And when she does, it's that really forceful over in stuff like, oh, there's a couch. I could have a couch. I could be the one with the couch. Like, exactly. That's that's not that's something anybody that's, says. That's not a character. That's a that's a caricature. Yes. 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 That's exactly it. Um, yeah. it. And it's really puzzling because, as the lead actor, I mean, you know, she should be given the, the sort of lines mm. that Graham gets. And mm. that's where Mark comes in. Where he says he, she has no gravitas at all. I mean, it's the most overused word in Doctor I don't Who. like using it, but... <laughs> yeah. you know, but like... it, 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 she, she lacks presence. She lacks mm. believability. But she lacks a script. Yes. And I think she could do a lot more. If she'd been given some of those Graham scenes, mm. I think we'd be saying a lot more about her great performances. But you can't give a great performance if all you're doing is exposition. True, true. And I suppose we get to see how, you know, just as we close off on this, I think... They're all coming back for the next series in 2020, whatever. Nine. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to see, hopefully, the Jibnall and the production team, what they've learnt doing this. Yes. And hopefully there's grounds for improvement. I think so. Yes. Actually, no, Dave, if you're going to recommend an episode for, for, a, for, a, uh, for a slightly like disengaged Mark. person like myself... Which one would you recommend? I and, I and remember, I know where you live and I have your phone number. Well, you're Which in my one? house right now. So. <laughs> now you tell me. Uh, look, I would say too, I think, I agree with Richard, um, although it's not, I think, the best episode of the series, Witchfinders is fun. Yeah. And if you, if you get nothing out of that performance, you don't think I want to find them... You know, just check your soul and at the door all the way out. Sort of like. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I must admit, I, th- I thought Kablam was a very good sci-fi episode. Okay. And there was at least a plot there. There were some characters, and it was you know the the, the, the TARDIS crew got split off and yeah. checked out different bits of the the, the mystery. And uh, Lee Mack was in it for just as I long. Like Lee Mack. Just as long as his acting potential could cope with <laughs> yes, so about yes. ten minutes. Yes. yes. Um, and then he was quietly dispatched. But mm. uh, yeah, look, they're, they're, they're the two. As I said, I really like Punjab, but I think if you're not getting anything out of the series so far, Punjab mm. may not land with you. And I would advise watching It Takes You Away. There's some. It starts creepy and gets creepier, and then it takes a right turn. 
to Albuquerque, I think. And, uh, Halfway up the <laughs> stairs. <laughs> so now what you need to drop in is the scream from yeah. uh, <laughs> from the goodies. Yes. Yeah. Halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. Now, moving from one hack rider to another. Oh, geez, that's a hurdle. Our next segment is called, quite uh, wittily, I thought, it was called State of the Nation. I still think you should go with a state of the nation. Boom, it's even better. Why don't you tell us all about it, Dave? I wanted to put the question to the group. Mm-hmm. When people talk about the great classic Doctor Who writers, mm-hmm. there are names that very deservedly come straight off the tongue. Uh, Robert Holmes, Malcolm Hulk, uh, Terence Dix... Chris Boucher, for example. Pip and Jane Baker. Sure, sure. <laughs> what? But but very rarely does Terry Nation get mentioned in that sort of group. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the impact he had on Who, when I look at the stories he wrote, which I think are mostly incredibly good, mm-hmm. why why is that? Is it because of some of the, the legends about him? Is it because of the attitude that fans had to him later? Or, or do people not like his story? So I want to just have a chat about Terry Nation. Is he one of the greats? He's in the conversation, I think, overall for being one of the greats. Certainly his impact on the show uh, with the Daleks, the creation of the Daleks, means that the show lasts for this length of time rather than perhaps two or three years. I think, I don't, I think at this distance, Dalek mania, the, the complete all-consuming interest in that, helped propel the show forward for many, many years. Yes. I th- think you're right in, in, in certain regards that he's a very good writer, Dave, or a good writer at least. I mean, there are some stories that unfortunately don't necessarily stand the, the test of time. I think... Um, what the Daleks? I think Death to the Daleks perhaps is oh. not as... I mean, it's it, you, you could sort of cozy up to it on a wet afternoon Which and I enjoy do. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Planet of the Daleks, I've, I've struggled with that for many a year. Um, I think, though, overall, he's a, he's a better... I mean, his overall career, he's a better ideas man, perhaps, than, than, than a writer. And I still dispute that he wrote all of Genesis of the Daleks because there's dialogue in that, iconic dialogue in that, that he never produced beforehand or after. Mm. I think that's one of those things that is perhaps a little bit unfair about him in that we sort of sit there and say now, if it was a really good Terry Nation story, oh, well, it was probably the script editor. Mm. And if it was a bad one, oh, the script editor took a break that day. Mm. Um, You know, (laughs) people sit there and go, oh, the Android invasion, well, that was clearly just written by Terry Nation. Whereas I think it actually is clearly influenced by Robert Holmes Mm. and and to to the point that it follows the Robert Holmes, Philip Hinchcliffe thing, you know, all all those of the plot beats up to and including the really perfunctory ending you know, yes. it's, it's not quite hitting the skill Sutek button on the TARDIS console <laughs> but, but the eye patch is sort of that sort of thing like it, it is very much we don't care about the ending we've just had a great no, adventure situation exploration crisis resolution <laughs> yes, yes that's right <laughs> um, I think Genesis is clearly very largely written by Terry Nation because you look at all the plot beats you look at the ideas yeah a lot of the ideas are, are ideas he's used elsewhere yeah and, and possibly the moment where Barry Letts and Terence Sticks turned to him and said, um, look, you've sold us this script a couple of times before, why don't you go and write a new one? Why don't you tell us the genesis of the Daleks? Was the the inspiration he needed to go and go, actually, I got really excited and wrote a good one. Because yeah. he has written good stories and you look at some of the stuff he did for Blake Seven and Survivors, mm. again, very, very good. So I, I just wanted to sort of not debunk that, but maybe put a different thing on it. And Richard, I sort of cut you off before. We sort of introduced him as a hack writer. Um, which I think is actually true in the original sense of hack, which is that he is somebody who would turn out a usable script reasonably quickly and was reliable. 
Dave and I have obviously just gone through uh, now 14 episodes of Terry Nation's writing in Black 7. Um, and he has a lot of really cool concepts and a lot of his scripts are very good. In some ways, it's maybe... With Blake Seven, I think it's certainly he has definitely overreached because there is that sort of... You get into those later season one episodes where he clearly is, is now burnt out and he's now starting to run out of steam. Yeah, but you look at The Way Back, which he clearly yep. wrote. Mm-hmm. You look at Spacefall, which he yep. wrote the Bovast bulk of. No doubt Chris Boucher threw in a couple of cool lines, but yes. they are both Terry Nation scripts, and they are incredibly good pieces of television. Yes, they are. And, and look, the first probably nine episodes of Series 1 generally are pretty strong. I think once you get, as I said, into that back four, yeah. uh, you do get to the point where he... And it's another famous Terry Nation story um, where he goes home and tells his wife, oh, I've had this new series commissioned by the BBC. And I agreed to write all the first season. Um, and that probably is one of the things about Terry Nation. There are those sort of, those fan legends of, uh, everybody knows the Terry Nation tropes. Yes. Yeah, yes, he recycled ideas. Yes, he was often late with his scripts. Um, that sort of he stuff. He screwed Ray Cusack. Well, the BBC really screwed over Ray Cusack. Well, but between them, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, the BBC didn't help. Sorry, just to dovetail there to the point you made earlier, Rob, he doesn't always get that credit for the creation of the Daleks either because people do feel very bad about the way that Ray Cusick was mm. treated mm. and that wasn't necessarily down to Terry but it does sort of cloud Terry's legacy a bit yeah. yes it does well I think now isn't it he owns the concept of the BBC on yeah. the look I yeah. think isn't yeah. it yeah so you know and everybody has these sort of standard Terry Nation stories that they trot out I think when he comes up in discussion like, like we've just done mm. there's a couple but, more I'll bring up later yeah, yeah. yeah. but really um, his Doctor Who stories on the whole are all pretty good. Well, the Daleks, classic. Yeah. Dalek Invasion of Earth, I watched that this week. Mm. That is a phenomenally well-written story. It's phenomenally well-written. The chase, look, it's faults, I think, lie in the production, and that's not Terry, Terry Nation's fault. Dalek Masterplan, that first half that he wrote, is mm. phenomenally good. Um, Genesis, even, look, look, yes, it is aided by the fact that Robert Holmes clearly did the final draft. Mm. Incredibly good. I like Death to the Daleks. I quite like Planet of the Daleks. I think in Android Invasion, again, it's not his best script, but it's got some really cool concepts. Like, yes. right, and, yes. and this is the this is the thing about Terry Nation. Yes, he, his, he, his ideas are very good. His yeah. sci-fi ideas as well. He has these great sci-fi ideas. Mm. Yeah, they don't always come off, but that's a really not you know not a bad thing. And look, we watched Destiny before we recorded today, and yes, that's not a bad story. And again, the faults with it, you know, it's not Terry Nation's faults that. Michael Wisher isn't playing Davros and the mm-hmm. mask doesn't fit and the Daleks are you know, clearly falling apart. And, and we're at season 17, Tom Baker. Yeah, like that's not Terry Nation's fault. The story is actually really good. Mm. And we all said when we were watching it, when we saw that as 10-year-old boys, we were absolutely gripped by Destiny yes. of the Daleks. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. gripped. I think it says a lot of, about Nation that he came up with three extremely solid ideas during his mm-hmm. career. I mean, the, look, yes, the Daleks you're relying on uh, the, the, the fear of nuclear war, plus all those sort of Nazi tropes that were, were mm. percolating at that time. But there's also, as you were saying before, boys, and you've been covering really well with um, your Black Seven podcast, mm. the whole Black Seven idea. Yes, it's probably the Magnificent Seven in space a little bit, but it's a solid mm. and, and really enduring idea. And of course, the survivors, um, well, survivors taps into that that notion of uh, you know, so certainly for the first season. Yes, before yeah. the coup comes along and yeah. is displaced. And those those first few episodes, particularly where the surviving starts they are very cleverly written they're very impactful yeah. and again it's not Terry Nation's fault that Terry Dudley came over and made it all about sitting around growing lettuces I mean no one has a career of such longevity as, as Terry Nation does is if he was really a hack 
in the pejorative sense of the word, writer. I mean, he started in the late 50s and was writing up, up until his yeah. death, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So he, yeah. he had clearly had some talent and, and you know, some very strong ideas to contribute. He was script editing IT, ITC series as well. well he was know? one yeah. of those so, uh, sort of films. Was it The Swaders or one of those? I can't uh, remember which one. It was, the, was uh, the Baron, I think, and yeah. I think he also did the last season of The Avengers. He did the last season of The Avengers. He wrote on Thriller, yeah, you've got, yeah. you've The got Protectors, The, so the Persuaders. But he was actually script editing some of these as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely The Avengers, he was the last, I, last I, script editor. Yeah, I think for Doctor Who, though, when... Nations sort of coupled with a really strong script editor like a Whitaker and a Holmes and a Dix as well to a point. Um, I think his work is really good Doctor Who wise. But that's the same with everyone. Exactly right. So like, you know, Dennis Spooner got his hands on the chase and that's why the chase isn't particularly well regarded. Uh, Dalek Masterplan is that story of basic, always being trotted out by Donald Tosh is basically, you know, Terry on the way to his airport just dropped four pages and walked off. You know, so which is probably a bit disingenuous. Which is exactly, but you mm. see, you hear though, you hear those stories, and you go, oh, well, you know, Dalek Masterplan was basically all Donald Tosh, really, and Dennis Spooner. So you know, I think it's where some of the, um, I suppose, the, the bad press and negativity towards nation comes from. But as I said, I mean, as you said before, you know, Daleks is fantastic. Dalek Invasion of Earth is fantastic. I have a lot of love for Death of the Daleks and Destiny of the Daleks as well. You know, look, we know there's a script there somewhere, but when, when it's coupled again with a weak script editor, which, let's be honest, D- Douglas Adams was, I think he was a really weak script editor. I mean, yeah. even... Yeah, yeah. Well, he wasn't, he, well, a lot of the time he wasn't actually working because he was desperately trying to get Hitchhikers He's trying to get Hitchhikers done. He's... he's his eye wasn't on the ball fully with the yeah, script if, if you want somebody to tighten the script and put a, put, a, put a structure around it Douglas Adams is not your, not your go-to guy <laughs> not the guy um, yeah. can, I, can I throw into the mix as well there Mark Keys of Marinus yeah which again when you look for I mean you remember this was 1964 so stuff that might look a little bit cliched now you know it's had 50 plus years yeah. to, to, to look that way there's some really interesting ideas in that most of which don't outstay their welcome the vegetation taking over that's a you know, cliche idea but it's done yeah. very well it's written very well the go find them in the ice cave sort of thing again it's not that great idea but he puts in the, the, those knights he puts in a bit of peril he has rapey Vasor in there yeah. which again you know really yeah. works yeah. Um, mm. the city of Morphoton that's classic sci-fi but he mm. makes it work yeah. and, and so yeah I just think that's a really good example of someone who's just been told give us six episodes to fill some story and as you said, Richard, he can just turn it out mm. and, and put in a good story. He did the key to time in six episodes. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Mm. Essentially, yeah. And probably the other thing as well that we need to mention, the big thing that I remember when I was getting involved in fandom, late 80s, early 90s, when most of us were involved, is that was when there was all the real stories about Terry Nation would come out about how he insisted Davros being used, the way he would just absolutely screw people with the rights for the Daleks. Yes, yes. and, and that's then he was very protective He wanted script approval yeah. for everything post-Destiny, and yeah. And, and, and to what extent did that sort of cloud the fan memory of him? Dimensioned in time, he wouldn't let a Dalek be in there? Yes, true. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. That was probably a sound decision on my side. But this is all uh, a writer protecting his income. Yeah. Protecting his, his legacy. As we say, yeah. now, IP. I mean, I, I have no problem as, 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 a, as, a, as a hobbyist or amateur writer, I have no problem with someone like Terry Nation protecting his income, his family's income. Uh, in the manner he did it. I mean, you know, you can be a bit more polite about it, I suppose. But at the end of the day, mm. he's the one who come, come up with the concept of the Daleks. He has the copyright. You, you, if you don't protect it, you lose it. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, look, fans can be precious, and uh, you know, and in this instance, I think they were far too precious. 
And, and now that we've removed a bit from that, we can just enjoy his stories. Well, for sure. I, I think that his, his yeah. reputation should go up. Yeah, I totally agree. And as I said, Blake 7, when I watched the whole thing uh, in its entirety, I thought it was a really, uh, really great series. Um, obviously held together a lot, underpinned with, with Boucher, but the first series of Blake 7, you know, is, is particularly strong. And, and again, full of great sci-fi concepts, yes, as, and as we said. Yeah. Uh, you know, something like Project Avalon has some really cool concepts mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. You know? His greatest work, obviously, was a MacGyver. <laughs> you know, and let's not forget the ill-fated bid uh, with with Jerry Davis for the show in the early nineties. Who knows what could happen? And do the Blake Seven revival attempt? Yeah. Yes, or the various attempts to take the Daleks to America as a standalone. Yes, which probably is for the better. That didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Terry, we salute you. Now, the next subject we're going to uh, tackle might be a little bit uh, tricky or thorny. Yeah, so hold on to your underpants. So basically, we're calling this uh, next segment Taboo Stories, or as I'm calling it, why are the Get Up fans picking on talons of Wang Chiang? <laughs> so trigger warning for anyone who, I don't know. <laughs> of a nervous disposition. If you're not a fan of nuance, this segment <laughs> is probably not going to be for you. <laughs> no, no. Skip forward 45 minutes. <laughs> if you like marching through Twitter, slashing left and right... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> like we do. <laughs> no, jokes aside, I think what you're saying is fair, Mark. There's been a lot of debate about these subjects. Yeah. And I think that, as is the nature of conversation in the 21st century, particularly on social media, it has been completely lacking in nuance, lacking in debate. Mm. And if somebody disagrees, well, you're just evil and, you know, basically the reincarnation of Hitler. Yes. 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 So I reckon we can have this conversation without calling each other Hitler. <laughs> So there are a number of stories which I think uh, are now viewed as problematic. Um, There's a list, like some fans have a list. list. Yeah. Do you know what this list is, Dave? Well, Talons of Wang Chang is clearly at the top. Yeah. Uh, the Celestial Toymaker. Yeah. Team of the Cybermen. Yeah. The Ark. Yeah. Uh, Terror of the Autons. Yeah. I think they're probably the five that really come in for the, the kicking. Okay. Any others mm. people can suggest? The Smugglers? With Jamaica, no? A, a little bit. I think that's a, gets nobody, away with it because nobody's watched it. Yeah, you're right. And, and I think this and this is the thing. Some of the stories on that list, I think there are problems, and we can discuss them and agree mm-hmm. that they, yeah, there, there are problems mm-hmm. in watching them. Do they destroy the entire story? Well, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. There are some on that list. I think it is unfair. What really concerns me, and I want to don't know whether we want to talk about this now or as we get on. I think there are stories not on that list. They get a free pass that I actually find very dubious. Okay, excellent. So let's talk about the first one, the, the one that sort of sticks out the most. Uh, and is that because it's been in discussion recently? In the Cardiff Pravda? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we'll talk about that one, shall we? Let's talk about, openly, uh, the talents of Wing Chiang. That's a classic. It, it is, is a classic. It's a Stone Cold classic. Yeah. That's the end. But <laughs> it's, it's not new. I mean, I remember in fandom, well, certainly in Australian fandom, twenty over 20 years ago, we're talking probably mid-late 90s, mm. uh, where Talons was, was sort of seen as a... It was mainly, I think, around the casting of John Bennett and the way he was made up. Why did they not just cast an Asian actor? Now, I can say I have actually had the benefit of having a conversation with Christopher Benjamin, uh, who played Jago, obviously, in Talons, mm-hmm. um, about that. He was here with Trevor Martin uh, doing something for the RSC. So we did an interview, and the, and the question did actually come up during the interview we did. So when was this? Uh, this would have been about 98, 99, yep, I think. Yep. Yeah, that did come up during the conversation. And his take on it was, well, really, at that time, because... British acting was extremely heavily unionised and the BBC was very unionised as well. 
Um, a lot of what we would call perhaps actors from minority backgrounds mm-hmm. were actually not equity members. So, yeah. of course, you couldn't hire a non-equity actor mm. uh, as anything other than an extra. Mm. Now, as far as something like that was concerned, you really only had probably someone like Bert Kwok. Yes. Now, if he wasn't available, like he's off making one of the Pink Panther movies or something, <laughs> um, you didn't have a lot of choice. So, yeah, you know, and that's potentially the decision they make. I mean, you've got the guy who plays Lee in Towns of Entrain, but he could not have... Pull that off. No, absolutely. and I mean, look, there yeah. is another, and I think he's in Destiny of the Darks, oh, uh, an actor called Yip. David Yip, David Yip um, yeah. who would later go on and star in a series called The Chinese Detective. Yes. But he would have been far too young for yeah, that absolutely. role yeah. uh, in, in 1977. Mm. So, And, you know, I can understand that. I, I think it is a little bit of an excuse. I mean, mm. perhaps if they looked around how they could have found it. But then again, how do you, um, you know, like the Indian actors playing Australian Aboriginals in Fort of Doom? Well, that, that oh, yeah, is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, one of the good things, though, I mean, John Bennett does give a very good performance. Yeah. Now, I can very much understand it. In fact, I'm sure, you know, when all of us put talents on to watch it, when you first see John Bennett in the makeup, there is a part of us now that sort of goes, ooh, that, that's not ideal. No, and I guess, just thinking back to the DWM thing, if you, I mean, most of those time team people were quite young. I mean, they're millennials, I think, all of them. Um, now, I guess if you hadn't grown up during the 1970s and weren't aware of the background of the story and what the story was actually based on, because, I mean, look, it's the world of Sax Romer and Fu Manchu. Um, Terence Dix in the novel even says, you know, uh, when Chang's on stage, he does that affected pidgin English that, you know, that the audience would expect him yeah, it's to part speak. Yeah, part of the show. Yes. You know, and you notice he doesn't really speak like that when he's, uh, when he's not on stage. If you were young and didn't have that experience or have that background to it, I could see that that would be quite a confronting thing to watch. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, though, is that sometimes they see the rest of the story through that prism. Mm, and yeah. I think sometimes I miss the point. There's some of those wonderful lines where Chang in part one is in there with the doctor and the police officer, and Chang's doing all that sort of ironic, dry, like, I believe we all look the same to you. People are taking that as, oh, that's a racist comment saying all Asians look the same, whereas actually it's very clearly the character having a bit of a dig at the police. Yeah. The problem is Robert Holmes has also thrown in there a few lines that are very much Robert Holmes' sense of humour, like, you know, the jokes about just a little problem and yeah. all that sort of thing, which which are a little bit off-colour. Look, for me, it's like what you said before, Dave, there's just a lack of nuance in the response of, you know, people online to a story like this or stories like this. They, they lack historical understanding, they lack production understanding, they, they lack, uh, you know, the general knowledge of the series that older viewers like us have Mm. and they are far less forgiving Mm -hmm. and for a group that preaches tolerance uh, extreme tolerance Mm. their their lack or their refusal to sort of understand the nuance of the production at that time Mm. is is remarkable for me Mm. Um, and it's hypocritical to be honest when the whole thing kicked off in the in DWM a few months ago Dr Elizabeth Sandifer made the comment that if you like uh, talents of Wen Chai Yang then you are a bad person well, I, I'd call BS on that, but all right. I, 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 we're all bad people in that sense. And yeah. Look, you can sit there and go, that's a problematic choice that would not be made today and probably shouldn't have been made then yeah. and no. still go, this is a very well-written, well-acted, um, fun yeah, piece of television. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, going back to the Blake 7 episodes we've watched, uh, the episode Bounty towards the end of the first season. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, now, the future as presented in Blake 7 is very, very white, um, and Bounty represents the first time we actually see anybody of colour yes. uh, in the series. And they are 
A, the bad guys, and they are very obviously set up and coded as the bad guys. Yes, by being dressed as Arabs. Yes. Yes. They, they've got Asian space act- Arabs. Yeah, they've got Asian actors wearing space Arab costumes. Yes. And it's just, a, it's a deliberate shortcut way of saying these are greedy, avaricious, evil people. Yeah. And that clearly is a very unpleasant decision. Yeah, and we did call that out when we saw it, but... Hmm. I mean, look, you could say that that didn't stop us enjoying the story, but Bounty is very good. <laughs> and it's not because of that. No, no, there are no. bigger problems with Bouncy than that. <laughs> but, yeah, um, and then, look, it's a decision, again, you wouldn't do today. I mean, the world has moved television. on. I mean, Doctor Who was doing in the 60s. Marco Polo had people dressed up, you know, as, mm. as, as Asian actors. The Crusade had people blacked up, you know. Mm. It was, unfortunately, it was just the way it well, was back then. Didn't Patrick Troughton want to play blacked up? He did, exactly right. It is what it is. And what's the problem with Terminus Cyberman? Toberman. Toberman, I think, is the one where it is actually very hard to defend it now. Yeah. You've got the the one black member of the cast, I think, pretty much for the entire season. He's shown to be thick. He's shown to be mute. Um, he's shown to be the effectively the slave yeah. of somebody. He's not given his own agency. Th- that is actually a very problematic performance. Now, some of it comes from the fact that he was originally meant to be deaf and have cybernetic implants, which was sort of why the Cybermen take and all the rest of that. That's dropped. But nevertheless, you are presented with a black guy as a slave, as dumb, and as mute. And, 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 yeah, but mm. look, I still think Tomb is a very well-made story. I enjoy Tomb a lot. But yeah. I must admit, I do think that Toberman is incredibly problematic. And of mm. all the ones on the list, that's the one I'm most willing to just go, you know what, that actually was a pretty bad I call. think my point is that you've got to go in and understand you know, what was going on at the time in terms of production of the show. And if you can take that on board, if you're flexible enough to take that on board, you can still enjoy the show without, you know, throwing it in the bin and just, you know, removing it from your collection entirely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in contrast, when Roy Stewart turns up again in Terror of the Orphans, which is another one on the list, I actually have no problems with that performance because the criticism is that he's shown to be a bad black guy. But... He's playing, and you know, he's in the the loincloth and the rest of it. Yeah. But clearly, to me, that is just truth in fiction. Mm. In that they are in a really dodgy, terrible nineteen seventy um, UK circus, yeah. which was full of you know Dodginess. exploited, yeah, that's right, black yeah. black people in loincloths doing the strongman act. That's right. Like in the same way that they showed footage of you know elephants being whipped and doing all the stuff things to do with them in circuses and yes. dodgy clowns, there were dodgy strongmen. And that, that just, if you were setting something in a circus, that would be a character yeah. you would have. And, and that, that was, to me, accurate. I don't have a problem with that one. Celestial hmm. toy maker. I get how Michael Goff is dressed. To be honest, when I saw the pictures and I saw episode four when they released it on tape, I didn't actually immediately get this is a guy, you know, this is a sort of a coded Asian thing. I just thought, okay, well, he's wearing quite a sumptuous robe and... That's how he's chosen to dress. Yeah, yeah, yeah to right. be honest. And, and Celestial, one of the meanings of, is cosmic. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So he's the cosmic toy maker. I that mean, that to me never, I yes. never blinked at that. I mean, now I'm older and now I do know that Celestial was a derogatory term for the Chinese that came out to mine gold and that here and in, in the US. But there's okay. nothing else about the toy maker that indicates anything of an Asian background anyway. No, no exactly. it's just a title. There's no, you know, yellow face or anything like that. There's no other... Uh, Asian imagery in you know, the or, or references episode. or anything exactly. like that so he, he just is a cosmic toy maker exactly you yeah. are 100% right the word is cosmic yeah mm. and had he been called the cosmic toy maker and dressed like that would that have been acceptable because as I mean I just saw it as he said a very sumptuous sort of robe robe yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean celestial is a far better word than cosmic anyway so you know you can understand why the writer went with that mm. so can I bring up a couple of um, 
ones that I think do get a pass from fans and perhaps Absolutely. do it unfairly. Yeah. And, and I want to go outside of Doctor Who as well with this, but um, look, the big one that I have a problem with is Creature from the Pit. Oh, yeah. Yes. Now, I've, I've always struggled with it a little bit, but... This is your only problem with it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, look, I have a lot of problems with not, Creature not from the Pit. Not even Catwoods, I'll be that. <laughs> <laughs> but look, to, to make an absolutely serious point, I've always had a problem with it for, for that reason. So that's the, the Semitic portrayal of Torvan. What it really hit home for me, though, was at the start of this year, I was in Israel and visited Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem. And that is, that is a phenomenally powerful and moving experience to go and see that, that museum. And the second room that you go to as you work your way through this museum is the one that's about the background of anti-Semitism and that although the Nazis weaponized anti-Semitism, it had been around in European culture for centuries. Yeah, yeah. And, and they show these various images, you know, from books and posters and cartoons and magazines of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish imagery. And if you put a photo of Torven into the middle of that collection, it would not have looked out of place at all. Mm. And that, that really brought home to me just how big a problem that is. Mm. This is a production team that has been through World War II, knows all about the Holocaust, and still someone has made a decision that the way that we quickly code this character as avaricious, greedy, immoral, Using shady, shady yeah. Yeah. is to play them as a comedy Jew, yeah. and that to me is a real, real problem. Like that, that is clearly knowing anti-Semitism, mm. and, and that's a real problem. And, and what kind of gets to me is, you look at, for example, some review podcasts. I can think of one podcast that said they could barely watch Talons of Wing Chun because it was so offensive. They could barely watch Two Simon because it was so offensive. They made one throwaway mention that, oh, I guess there's a bit of anti-Semitism in the creature from the pit, but what a good story. Um, I've listened to another podcast where again well, clearly they're deluded but yeah, go yeah well that's, that's a problem as well um, I can think of another podcast again where you know they picked out all the problems with all the stories we've done they got to Creature from the Pit and sort of five minutes before the end one of them said oh should we mention the anti-Semitism one of the cast then actually goes on to sort of try and defend it as being oh, part of that London comedy fortunately another one goes stop you can't do that stop that now um, but again people who are happy to slam other instances yeah. give a free pass to Creature, from, one. Yeah. Creature from the Pit. I, I have a real problem with that and I mm. think that I, look, I could go on a bit about why I think that is but I don't want to go I'll, too far. I'll, I'll go. I'll, I'll do it. All right. Is it because a lot of Doctor Who fans are of the left and the left has a real problem with the, the, the mere existence of Israel and you tend to get and I'm not saying that's the, what's in the heart of the podcast. Well, pod, no, no. Very, very clearly clear. we're not saying that. But there is there is a tendency on the left to degrade Israel and the Jewish project as such in the Middle East. I think there is also a tendency for us to, or, or for uh, the collective mm. to excuse people they want to excuse. Mm. And I see that outside of Doctor Who in very recent cases. I mean, look, we said before the Crusades get to pass, I think because as fans we all think Bernard Kay is wonderful because... the it's so well written. It's so well yeah. written. You know, the, the portrayal of Salah Din yeah. is very, actually very yeah. sympathetic. Yeah. Um, so we give Bernard Kay, he was, he was clearly wearing blackface. Yeah, that's right. We give that a pass because yeah. we like the story. Yeah. But we don't give Talons a pass. Exactly. Um, more recently in Australia we had several series by Chris Lilly um, which involved oh, yeah. him. I mean, Summer Heights High was the big thing they yeah. did. He yeah. did several yeah. versions. Yeah. But one of his characters is him putting on blackface, yeah. putting on a comedy Pacific Islander wig, yeah. mm-hmm. doing a comedy Pacific Islander voice yeah. and playing a Tongan who is thick, abrasive, rude, um, and unpleasant. Yeah. And we sort of, you know, that's acceptable. He because, wins awards. Yeah, that's acceptable. He yeah. wins awards yeah. mm. because it's on the ABC and we like Chris Lilly. Yeah. Um, Matt Lucas in Come Fly With Me yes. has a character where he puts on blackface, he does a comedy Arab voice. That's okay because we like Matt Lucas, but other things aren't. So I, I just find this. Um, 
arbitrary nature of what is utterly offensive and must be banned mm. and what's award-winning, yeah. it, it just seems really arbitrary Pulls to me. apart. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I don't. I don't mind if you say that it's all bad. I don't mind if you say that it's all problematic, but forgivable or whatever. But if you can't watch *Shin the Cyberman*, but you think *Creature from the Pit* is acceptable, that to me kind of shocks me. Mm. What else is on the uh, the disc list? Uh, well, *The Ark* is the other one. *The Ark*, and 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 I think is that because of the space kitchen? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think it actually stems a lot from Dr. Sandifer's work. Now, Sandifer is a very intelligent capable academics she writes a very good blog I've read a lot of it and I've enjoyed it and, you know some of it I've agreed with some of it yeah. I haven't but it's been very thought provoking but I think the thing that Sandifer's commentary does suffer from is that if you see if you go into something looking for it to be um, of its time slightly racist slightly misogynistic slightly offensive you're going to find something yes and I think in the arc that's that's very much the case mm. I always read the arc mm. as being the doctor arriving he finds this civilization where the humans are very patronizing very sort of colonial towards the monoids and he calls that out you know they're, they're treating you very you know you're, you're a lot smarter than they, they treat you as and this isn't very appropriate but he's kind of busy sorting out a plague and doesn't really deal with that and then the, the situation's reversed and the monoids oppress the humans and that's bad as well and at the end he and the refuse and say you all just have to learn to live together you have to travel with understanding as well as hope and you actually have to be equals yes and i always walk away from the arc going this is a story about racism and that racism is wrong and that you all have to live as equals hmm. now it's a bit clumsy there because you're not there to do a parable you're there to have a cool space adventure yeah. and the plot always is put in front of yep. um, the, the moral, particularly in the 60s. But I think the moral is very clear, but he sees that as being, well, humans oppressing monoids is okay, but when the monoids rise up and have self-government, that's, you know, that's bad. And I think that's a completely false reading. But if you then say the Ark is actually pro-colonial and that Toymaker is anti-Asian, suddenly the entire John Wiles era is seen as racist yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's a complete misreading of, of the arc mm. which is really unfortunate because I think it's a wonderful story mm. but if you read it in that way I can see well you have a problem mm. what about the mutants though would you say the mutants has got a problem because it's all about colonialism as well isn't it yeah but look it's it's not very well written it's not very subtle but it is very clearly anti-apartheid yeah I mean it doesn't spend much of its time actually making an anti-apartheid point it gets on with you know, space battles space and space stuff. concepts yeah. and space stuff, mm. yeah. which is fine. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it's like when we were discussing the goodies for the Goodies Pirate podcast, and mm. we said occasionally they make a slightly problematic choice, but it's because they're going for a gag, mm. and that's their job. Doctor Who will, if it has a choice between being a parable and having an exciting adventure, it picks the exciting adventure, and I think will be very problematic if it did. Yeah, no, Doctor yeah. Who isn't there to fight your favourite social cause, it's there to entertain you for 25 minutes that's right. or yeah. 48 as the case may be. Yeah, and, and if in the course of that, like, and, and Remembrance of the Daleks does it very Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah. If in the course of that it can put in a little bit of a message for the kids to go, you know what, racism is bad and, and, and we need to all them to, you know, yeah. love each other, that's a really good thing. But it's done in the context of a very exciting adventure. Yeah, it's called nuance, folks. Nuance. Subtlety. Look it up. <laughs> One final point we, we just sort of came up with here. Um, for Australian fans, really, probably in the early 1980s, is yeah. Monkey. Now, Monkey obviously was... And it was quite popular in Britain as well. It was very popular. Did you watch it? In yeah, UK? it did actually. It was on the UK for yeah, you. It was on, yeah, absolutely. I've got the uh, single of the theme song. Oh, wow. On BBC Records and Taste. Oof, there you go. Still got it somewhere. Now, Monkey, for anyone who doesn't know, was a Japanese TV series that was sold to the West and quite famously redubbed by Western actors. Including David Collins. Correct. Yes, including David Collins and Gareth Armstrong. 
That's right, yes. Yes, and Bert Kwok, actually, as oh. well. He's in the writer. And actually, the horse is uh, Andrew Sack, uh, Manuel, so, from uh, yes. Fossil Towers. Yes, I didn't know that, yes. Yes. Anyway, the point I was going to make was the producers made a very conscious choice to redub the episodes with a sort of pigeon English slant to it. Um, so you are left with things like... It's better to travel alone than with a fool. But what may two fools do? Dwelling on your brother's faults, said Buddha, only multiplies your own, and you are far from the end of the way. Monkey, you killed against my orders. Did you think I would let them rob you? Let them kill you soon enough? You're on Buddha's work. You know the law. Buddhists must never kill. <laughs> I guess the point I was going to make was, Monkey has now really become a cult classic. Yeah. Which really, when you think about it, in today's enlightened society, those act- voice acting choices are so- somewhat problematic. <laughs> yes, suspect, I think the word is, yes. I-, I think the point we're all making is that problematic is not a yes or a no thing. It is yeah. not, pardon the pun, black or white. Yeah. There is a sliding scale. And the other point is you can acknowledge a problematic decision or something that would certainly not be done today and was probably wrong at the time yeah. mm. and still enjoy the story and enjoy the episode. Correct. And it doesn't make you a bad person. It's not as if, you know, the production team were making Song of the South. No. <laughs> no, and again, look, Song of the South at the time was perfectly acceptable. Yes. Mm. I just look at some of the characters in Dumbo, for example. Yes. Mm. Very problematic. Mm. Yep, I look at those early Warner Brothers cartoons. There are some terrible stereotypes mm. in those Absolutely. if you go back and watch them. Or even something like Get Smart. I mean, I remember as a kid watching oh. Get Smart and just being absolutely in stitches about the claw and yeah. Harry Hook. I mean, they, they are yeah. great characters. Yeah. You wouldn't do them today. No. I actually think that's unfortunate. I mean, they are genuinely funny characters. Yeah. I will finish off by saying that the enlightened individuals at the moment conducting war on the internet should remember that in 50 years' time, yes. their views may be regarded as similarly outdated as the ones that they are campaigning against. So just be careful who casts the first stone. So, are we all going to watch Talons of Wing Chang after this? Yes. Absolutely. Now, after that heavy topic, we're going to uh, lighten it a bit. And it's time to uh, go into our Target Book Club, where we revisit the old Target novelizations from the days of yore. And uh, we have some selections that we've all read. And we're going to have a quick chat about them, aren't we? So the way we've um, selected our books this time around is that we looked at the uh, Cardiff Pravda's uh, Doctor Who poll. I think it was 50th anniversary poll. And we looked at the uh, novelisation list from the bottom of that pile. Uh, Death in Heaven wasn't in there. However, we had to make some other selection. I chose The Twin Dilemma. And what did you choose, Dave? Uh, the Dominators. And Richard. Horns of Nylon. And Rob. For the Doomsday. 42 to Doomsday or 4, four to, to Doomsday? Doomsday? 4 to Doomsday. So all, all stories from the bottom 20 of the DWM poll. So, yeah, yes. so uh, let's kick off with Richard. I had Horns of Nymon, and I'll start by saying I actually don't mind the Horns of Nymon. It is a bit of a guilty pleasure story yeah. for me. I think if you're in the right mood, you can chuck that on and be entertained by it. Drunk. The Horns of Nymon novel is, of course, by Terence Dix. Who else? And I'll say, just as a bit of background, this was released in October 1980, and 1980 is Terence's biggest year for... Doctor Who novels. There were ten Target books released that year, of which he wrote nine. So, yes, and they are all, with the exception of The Monster of Peladon, they are all uh, late season 15, some of season 16, and the first couple of season 17. So, that is an average of basically a book every six weeks, really. Across, uh, <laughs> Having said that, that's roughly about five or six thousand words a week. Yes. Which, which you can achieve. Yes. But Especially when you have the script in front of you. Yes, yeah. Unless you're Chris Chibnall. <laughs> but we are also really, this is the year, I think, where 
um, a lot of his novels were being criticised as really just being production line releases. Mm. This isn't probably quite as bad as Destiny of the Daleks, which I think is probably the low point. Mm. Um, it's a very thin book with very large font, <laughs> if you remember your target novel. I have to say, though, in terms of capturing a story that would have only been on what, 12 months previously on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have watched The Horns of Diamond in the not too distant past. It actually did a very good job of helping you to relive what was on screen. It's not a great piece of literature, but then again, it's not the only target book you could level that at. In fact, I think that would be true of most of the range. But um, I, as I said, thought it was quite an enjoyable read. It was a very light read, but it was very enjoyable. Um, he took the time to write a little prologue where we have the, the his version of the Nymon coming to Skonos. Skonos being a ruined society that had just collapsed during a civil war. Um, the Nymon lands in his capsule and the military drags Soldeed out of a laboratory somewhere and sort of force him at gunpoint to go in and see what uh, see what's in the capsule. And then he comes back out hour later in his robes and with the staff and, you know, becomes the leader of the planet sort of thing. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. I'm going to have to read that now. Yeah. Um, that was really quite entertaining to read. It's, it's probably, it's not quite as detailed maybe as the one at the start of The Time Warrior. Yeah, uh, that, that whole the Robert Holmes, Robert Holmes bit, Robert, yeah. the, the bit Robert Holmes wrote yeah. <laughs> yeah. before handing it off yeah, yeah. but uh, no I really enjoyed it I thought it was quite, a, quite an entertaining ride do you think it was better than the TV version look it doesn't have the doctor clutching K9 and the TARDIS <laughs> doesn't make the silly boing noises <laughs> one of the things I like about Horns of Diamond on TV the cast are clearly having a lot of fun making it um, and look if you're in the right mood you can just have a lot of fun with them and you can laugh along with them unlike say Creature from the Pit where you're laughing at it yeah. uh, so as I said it is a very good way to relive what's on screen so yeah I, I thought it was quite a good book mm, very good over to you Dave so I picked The Dominators mm-hmm. um, because I actually found that there were a lot of stories in the bottom of 20 I actually quite enjoy mm. um, and I you know, was almost going to read The Sensorites but I quite like The Sensorites so mm. I went in with the, to The Dominators wondering if Ian Marta who wrote it was able to basically lift what I think is a very, very poorly written story and make it entertaining. Hmm. The answer is you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's interesting. Ian Martha, as we know, is one of the uh, is a very good writer, yes. and some of the novels he did, particularly stuff like The Ark in Space, mm. um, even The Invasion, which mm. is only a couple of stories later chronologically, are very, very good books. Yeah. He definitely does try and expand the story a bit, and he uses the fact that he's a book rather than a TV story to... Uh, change a few things so the dominators go from being just blokes in dodgy costumes to you know, seven foot tall giants with you know that sort of thing and slightly different skin and gaunt and all the rest of it so he, he, he increases that a bit and he gives a bit more characterization to Jamie Jamie gets a lot more interiority and there are moments for example where Jamie's just wondering you know, how can he basically troll the Dolcians because he finds them so boring mm. um, but in the end I don't think Ian Martin was really engaged by the plot he really doesn't find much to add to it and he can't lift the Dolcians who I think are the problem with the story yeah. and although he changes the dialogue up a bit and he does a few little tricks in there it is still a story about very boring people mm. it is a very basic story and the novelization doesn't really get past that so I've read quite a few Tiger books over the last couple of years prompted by this segment and I've read others read others outside this segment this is the first one I've really struggled with and just thought it, it didn't do anything with the material at all hmm. and, and the story really anchored it so uh, disappointed by this one I'm sorry to say 
Read the rescue. Does he did a great job on the rescue? He did do a great yeah. job on the rescue. I must, I must read this. I love the rescue. Yeah, it's very good. Story. It's very good. We'll we'll talk about that later, actually. So the uh, book I uh, I selected was a Twin Dilemma. Now let's be honest. The television version of Twin Dilemma isn't universally popular, but we all agree it's still better than uh, Death in Heaven. Don't Absol- we? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and we stand by that. You know what? If you start watching the Twin Dilemma at part two. Yeah, it's just a kind of tacky space adventure. Yeah, it's part one that really throws that out. Yeah, so I think Garrick wrote this book while he was on uh, gardening leave, uh, in between <laughs> in between seasons, and I don't know whether when I was reading it was it was sort of giving me maybe an insight into his state of mind at the time because uh, in the first couple of pages, look, he really expands on Archie Celeste's um, state of mind and the family and his, his relationship with the boys. So, like, Sylvester's basically a philanderer. He's an alcoholic. He's on antidepressants. And he sees a psychologist. All in the space of maybe five or six pages. So I don't know whether that was reflecting Eric in real life at the time. But anyway, I found it an interesting, enjoyable read. Um, and in terms of the way the, the, the kids were kidnapped, uh, it's told by the uh, point of view of a cat. So your cat could have actually seen uh, how the whole uh, kidnapping transpired. So I thought that was actually quite interesting. Does it serve as Amy on the floor? Because that's how you know it's an alien kidnapping. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Didn't see that bit, though. Um, but look, even in prose, you know, Eric is not a big fan of, of the Sixth Doctor. Um, he does a number of scenes from Perry's point of view, which highlights the turmoil and the fear, the fear that she's going through. Um, and again, you know, Eric missed an opportunity here by when the uh, Doctor strangles Perry, that again, he doesn't apologise for committing uh, that act. In terms of some embellishments to the script, Sayward uh, expands on regeneration, how it works. He goes into a, a side story about a chancellor who was vain and, and regenerated, and at the end of the day, regenerated a blob. Um, he also identified the process, the, the hormone that kicks off the regenerative process. It's called Lindos. He has a bit of fan wank in there. The, do- the doctor reminisces about uh, Joe Grant, Teague, and Leela. Uh, Turlow, and he also expands a bit about uh, the memory of Adric. He, you know, the Doctor wasn't able to praise or fully like him before he died. Uh, he makes he sort of ties it back to slip back a bit where he mentions a drink uh, Voxnik. Hugo Lang doesn't come across as a particularly in the, in the TV show. He's quite a bit of a macho gun ho guy. He comes across and this is a bit of a prick. He just basically wants to seek fame and fortune and uh, celebrity status. So. Uh, he doesn't come across particularly good in that. Basically, though, remember the whole thing with the watch? He took Perry's watch. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's all gone, thank God. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, look, it was an enjoyable novel, um, but even it still can't hide the fact that The Twin Dilemma has a threadbare uh, plot. Eric's trying to make it sound like a Douglas Adams script, which actually, you know, when reading it, it would fit beautifully in season 17, actually. You know, people give Terry Nation a hard time with planet names, you know, like Terry used to call, was it Aridus? Aridus? Yes. Yeah. Well, Eric called one planet Senile Nine. <laughs> so, I don't know whether it's, it's, it's sort of a planet of people with Alzheimer's, I'm not too sure. But uh, look, I did enjoy the book. I, I actually remember started uh, the, the audio book I tried listening to a few years ago. I want to hear Colin Baker go, The Twin Dilemma, written by Eric <laughs> Sayward. Uh, but yeah, never got further than that. But look, I enjoyed it. I, uh, I thought it was a really good book, actually. Much better than the TV show. And uh, I would recommend a read. It is written at the same time he wrote the Slipback Radio play, isn't it? Yeah, had plenty of time gardening leave. Yeah, I, I do remember reading that for the first time. And it would have been about the same time I was discovering Douglas Adams. Mm. And it really stood out at that point to me as being very sub-Douglas Adams. Mm. But you're saying on its own it's actually not too bad. 
Actually, okay. okay. Yeah, I read it on the train and uh, I did have a few laugh out loud moments. I really did enjoy it, yeah. Okay. Now, over to Rob, he's going to talk about Four to Doomsday. Four to Doomsday, indeed. Now, I chose this in part because it helped inspire the name of this podcast, but also I have strong memories of actually buying this uh, when I was a lad. Uh, and waiting on the footpath uh, in town uh, for my mother to pick me up. So I was just—I remember starting to read the book on the side of, side of the road. Begging <laughs> for money, <laughs> and inspired by that wonderful Davis Nero photograph cover. Oh yeah, it's awful. <laughs> yeah. It, is, it is. It is awful. It is awful. But I do have strong memories of buying it. I think maybe on a Saturday morning. I'm not quite sure why I was allowed to roam the streets. By myself, so Sim- simpler times. Simpler times. It was Mildura, mate. And, and speaking, yes. And speaking, hello, all of those from Mildura who are listening, which would be about zero. And speaking of simpler times, this is an incredibly simple book. <laughs> it's no mistake that Terence Dix is a children's writer because this is pitched at an eight or nine or ten year old level. It is. It, it, it follows, as far as I can remember, the story particularly faithfully. The, the language used is is pretty basic. Um, there is a lot of use of authorial voice, uh, so for instance, uh, which I personally find really annoying actually, but um, you get stuff like, metacompression was a particularly agonising form of death. It was a favourite method of the master. It was the way he destroyed Tegan's art. So it's not particularly riveting when he breaks, breaks that out. Um, it makes Tegan's character, the novelizations, Tegan's character is even more annoying than, uh, than you would uh, experience on television, mainly because on TV you've got some you know, sound and movement around her to distract you from her grating voice and complaints. Here in the novelization, she just goes on and on and on and on, and it is, it's, it's just brutal. It's just, I don't know why the Doctor didn't shove her out into, into the void of space. <laughs> because she just, she just whines. She's just a complete whiner. And Adric, unfortunately, comes across as being a bit of a snivelling little... Yeah, basically, and, you know, anti-women. I mean, there's talk here about... Um, Tegan says, maths, said Tegan scornfully. That's the trouble with women, muttered Adric. And that's not the first time he disparages the females in the TARDIS. Um, I think he's got a bit of a love-hate relationship with Nissa that comes through slightly in this, in this particular novelisation. Look, as I said before, it hues pretty closely to the scripts of the, uh, of the TV production... It is a very basic story told very basically. It uh, It's not great, unfortunately, a bit like the story itself. But, um, yeah, and of course, unfortunately, as we mentioned before, the, the front cover is not inspiring. So, um, basically, not great, not, a, not an interesting experience at all. Um, this is pretty poor, to be honest, unfortunately. Poor choice? Oh, well, I'm happy to have, you know, made the choice to read it. <laughs> uh, but I didn't enjoy it particularly. Oh, Let's hope we can turn that frown upside down, Rob. And now it's time for our annual... Fan wank. As Richard calls it, the... Big finish bashing session. That's right. <laughs> no, 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 we're going to try and be a bit more open-minded, aren't we, Dave? We'll let Dave kick off, actually, with his non-big finish entry. So, Dave, take it away. Uh, so, I have an award here that is won collectively by Doctor Who magazine, or Collect- Cardiff Pravda. Thank you. Uh, they, get it, they get it for two incidents during the course of the year. Yeah. Uh, the first is one that happened recently, where in their latest reader survey of the season that's just gone, mm. they have abolished 20 years of tradition, and they no longer ask you to rank the stories from 1 to 10. You are now just required to list your three favourites. So we no longer have the worst story of the season. 
we just have the three you like, so nobody be upset. Too late for Colin Baker. I was but, just going to say, it's a piece of Colin Baker. Baker. So that's, that, that's that, 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 that to me is a bit of a wank. Um, but shocking. the other thing as well that they did was an incident relating to a former editor of Doctor Who magazine who responded to a tweet somebody said about, gee, why does Doctor Who magazine still pretend that these crypt uh, titles for the early Hartnell stories are 10,000 BC and the mutants and inside a spaceship? And this editor saw this and absolutely went postal. <laughs> Had an absolute mental breakdown about the fact that this was the correct one. Doctor Who magazine was right. Everybody else who uses all the other titles was wrong, and Doctor Who magazine will always be right. And I just thought, my God, 20 years later, you still haven't accepted that every commercial release of Unearthly Child, The Daleks, and Edge of Destruction uses those titles. We all use them. Yep, we get that there is no, in inverted commas, correct title from the time. Why are they still fighting this fight? And why is it such a why is it such a hill to die on for DWM? And to me, collectively, that is the fan wake of the year. Very good, Dave. That's some very uh, non big finish entries there. So thank you for expanding your mind. I'm actually very proud you actually still read that at DWM. Oh no, I just saw it on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not spending good money on that nonsense. Even though we hate torrented, don't we, boys? Right. Okay. So who's next? Rob. Yes. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you. I've got two. Um, Production-related comments from within the BBC, deep within the bowels of the BBC, mm. or maybe the top floor. Mm. Um, now, there was a uh, an interview in, um, I think it was the Radio Times, mm. with a BBC controller uh, whose name is uh, Piers Wenger. Oh, Piers Wiener. Piers Wenger. Wiener. Current BBC drama controller. He said the following about uh, Jodie Whittaker's um, hiring. It's a testament. To the energy and focus that Jodie has brought to Doctor Who, that it's hard to distinguish where one ends and the other begins. She said from the start that she could only do it her way, and so it has become. It's like Moses on the mountain, I think. <laughs> he continues, and this is the this is the real killer. Gone is the daffiness and idiosyncrasy of her predecessors in favour of a Doctor with energy, spark, and relatability. And that's why I've stopped watching it. Yes, there's very little energy or spark in her performance, as it turns out, and taking a big steaming shit on her predecessors is perhaps not the way to go but uh, look when you're BBC drama controller you can do what you like apparently and say what you like it's very sad when they have to big up the latest incarnation by belittling the performer mm. yeah I know oh, it makes no yeah. sense yeah. Yeah. it yeah. makes no sense it's like that line wasn't it where you know Peter Capaldi wasn't universally loved it's like fuck off oh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> and um, there was another quote from a BBC content director named Charlotte Moore. Now, oh, if yes. there wasn't such a make-work job as a BBC content director, what the hell do you do? What do you do? She congratulated uh, Chris Chimnall for being... Um, he's in the number two spot, I suppose, for you know influential individuals within the TV industry. Charlotte Moore said, Chris is a wonderfully talented, multi-award-winning writer whose catalogue of work speaks for itself. Cyberwoman. I can't <laughs> wait to see his passion and vision for Doctor Who come to life on BBC One this autumn. As a lifelong fan himself... I know he will bring something very special to the hit series to captivate old and new fans across the globe. What a load of mindless twaddle. There's no passion in his writing. It's the word just die on the page. And in terms of vision, well, I don't think he's gotten past his 17-year-old self on points of view. I mean, she's clearly drunk the Kool-Aid. They all drink the Kool-Aid. And, and to, to say that it's captivating for old, and, well, old fans it clearly is wrong. So Charlotte Moore, get another job. <laughs> professional fan like that maybe she can go join DWM <laughs> oh, 
that is, that, that is some high quality from work. Well done, okay. Rob. Well, uh, oh, well done. Okay, so I'm up now. So look, I'm just going to do what I did last year and go straight for big finish, the jugular. <laughs> now, every it's, month... It's such an easy target it's for an a slow-moving beast that has, <laughs> hasn't had an original idea in about 15 years. So every day or every couple of days we're going on Twitter and I'm seeing their press releases that keep saying, I've got to remember that for fan wank of the year. And next week it's overridden by something else even more fan wanky. So look, there was a couple of notable mentions during the year, so I might just quickly highlight some of those before I go for the, for the killer punch, right? The first one is called The Crash of UK 2, which is basically fan wanking Vicky on the crash spaceship on Dido and then she suddenly wakes up in her cabin on UK 201 again without her friends a few days before the accident. She's faced with a stark choice. Can she stop the crash from happening? And if she can, should she? I mean, what's the point of going back to a story that nobody remembers 55 years ago apart from Dave? It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another one. She's not going to stop it anyway. So Exactly right. It's happened. Uh, the Seventh Doctor and Mags from The Werewolf <laughs> on the <laughs> show in the Galaxy. <laughs> So, uh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> that noise you hear is not laughter, but barrels being scraped at the very bottom. Oh. <laughs> uh, unit Revisitation, Star of the Ruin, and Captain Chin Lee. <laughs> Captain Chin Lee Captain from the Mind of Evil! Oh. oh dear. Is it the actual actress? Even if it isn't, they'll still recast. Uh, River Song versus Unit. Um, I posted that picture around a couple of days ago where you saw Jenna Redgrave with Alex Kingston and, and, and Richard said, you know, what was your line? Uh, Can you see the resignation of Jenna Redgrave's eyes? <laughs> and I was thinking, looking at Alex Kingston going, you know, she's probably thinking, 15 years ago I was in ER and now I'm in this. Now I'm in this corridor. The winner is... Mark, there are no winners. This is... <laughs> It is the River Song Series 6, the final chapter, where basically she will go back and meet, and I quote, the original TARDIS crew, played by Jamie Glover and Gemma Powell and Claudia Grant. No, they're not the original crew, if I remember. Where River Song now goes back to meet the first incarnation so, of her so husband. I was going to say, so hang on, so David Bradley turned them down, did he? Or? We don't mention that name here. <laughs> so these people are taking the place of... William yeah. Russell, Jacqueline Hill, and... Um, yeah, because they appeared on five minutes on a docudrama, and now they're canon, right? Okay. So right. basically, the story is apparently River will go back and meet Hartnell. Now, Hartnell, not David Bradley, right, is going to meet River Song, get the hand of Omega, and bloody obliterate her, isn't he? <laughs> anyway, but the box set keeps going. But there's more! There's more! The second CD, set during the classic TV episode, The Web of Fear. River Song's now going to meet the abominable snowman. The third episode sees River trapped in a battle between classic Who monsters, the Ogrons and the Sontarans. Plus the Drashigs will make an appearance. But will she cross paths with the third Doctor and Joe Grant? And in the finale, River will travel back to Victorian London just before the classic fourth Doctor story, The Talons of Wing Chiang. I could go on. I was actually about to say, how could you work Strax into that set? And you've just given me the answer. <laughs> Exactly. So look, the, the 24 CD box is uh, coming soon and covered in fan glaze. Uh, congratulations to Nick Briggs. It's my fan rank of the year. I, I don't actually know how to follow that because um, I also actually went for the low-hanging fruit and went for a couple of big finish uh, things, but unfortunately you've just taken the couple I had. So, okay, sorry about that. Uh, but I, I have to say I did find their decision to start producing Callan audios uh, a bit of an interesting decision. Yes. Especially considering only one of the original cast is still alive and he's not in them. That's uh, Patrick Muller. I mean, look, they are using James Mitchell's short stories that he wrote 
for the Sunday papers, but I did find that a bit of an interesting decision. Now, we've got some uh, listener nominations for their Fan Man of the Year award, so we might just pass the iPad around the room and read a couple out. So I'll start with the first one because it's from my mate, Pirate Pete. Hello, Pete. Hope you're well. Who says, uh, whoever it was at the BBC said there'd be no daffiness uh, from Jody deserves a special mention. A nomination here from Joe Constable. Big Finish Productions have released plenty of products worthy of nomination at some level. Fourth Doctor meets River Song. Fifth Doctor meets River Song and Madden Kevorkian. Eighth Doctor meets Winston Churchill and the Candy Man. What? Eighth Doctor meets Winston Churchill and the Candy Man. That's got to be satire. Torchwood meets Wotan. Class meets Ace. And box sets featuring New Earth, Jenny, and Lady Christina. Oh, yeah. And announcements yes. for more next year. Torchwood versus Doctor Who Monsters featuring Fendal, Giant Maggots, Slavine, Autons, and Joe Grant. She wasn't a monster. <laughs> uh, River Song versus the Four Masters. I'm sure there are more, but that's okay. Hmm. The first Doctor original Susan meets Recast Susan, and box sets featuring the Paternoster Gang and Missy. I do generally get a smile out of these crossovers, but I think they should be called out for what they are. Fanwag. Fanwag. Uh, one here from Damien Zanik, which says, "Hi guys, my Fanwag award is a quote of the year. I'm big in local fandom." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we also have another one here just following on the Big Finish theme from Andy Taylor who says, anything by Big Finish? From Jed Sweeney who says, definitely the new first Doctor stories which shows, in my humble opinion, that Big Finish will stick a Doctor Who label on anything they think they can get away with. <laughs> Fair call. And uh, this one here is from the Who37 podcast Twitter account. Using the current Doctor Who logo for all licensed product, whether it be classic or modern era, seems to be a questionable choice. Call me a purist. You're a purist. But I think each era should be represented by its respective logo. <clears throat> Diamond for Tom, Neon for Davo, etc. And the last one is uh, Bernard JKD on Twitter. Uh, don't forget the Holocaust Denier Award for rewriting history. <laughs> Not one line, but several was taken by Piers Wenger after his slagging off of all pre-JW doctors. Or maybe the BBC press guy for his Capaldi was unpopular slur. Yeah, that was a particularly low point. There's some Gary Ackers. We've got his uh, nomination. So he's got a few there, so we might just read those out quickly. So uh, basically, Gary Ackers says, uh, the maybe we should have built this with the lights on the ward goes to the new TARDIS console room, which looks dark, cramped, uh, aesthetically schizoid, and seemingly impossible to effectively film in. Uh, yeah, I agree with all of that. <laughs> yeah. The Doctor in Distress Award for Oddest Musical Choice goes to Rosa for replacing the end title music with Rise Up. We get it, Chris, but uh, some things you just don't do. But the major praise for the gorgeous Indian uh, music version of the theme song in Demons of Punjab. Uh, the Nissa Asleep Award goes to Yaz, who spent the entire episodes looking around for something to do. Mandap, uh, you deserve uh, better. The uh, Special K Award for Worst of Villains Slash Monsters, uh, so named after the Khalids, the, the Crotons, Croagnon and the Candyman coming soon to a big finish production of you, goes to pretty much everything, everyone this season. Underdeveloped antagonists who provide every, nothing memorable at all and no real challenge or peril for the Doctor and co. Uh, the 2018 DWB Memorial Award for producer Who Must Go Now goes to Chris Chibnall, whose uh, credited stories are the weakest of the year and whose Doctor takes her cues from the most ineffectual of previous incarnations. 
Bye, Davison. Don't agree with that. Whose decision to abandon a season arc deprived the show of a much-needed sense of momentum to carry it through the weekend episode. So, and also the this hiatus is a hundred times worse than the one in eighty-five. Award goes to Mark and Rob for the much-missed but still highly anticipated forty-two to Doomsday podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Highly anticipated. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, thank you very much for that. Um, We've actually got a letter from Gary about uh, Season 11. Do you want to quickly read that out? Overall, an extremely frustrating season. The potential is there, and the second half of the season was much better than the first half, but the show feels tied down and lacklustre, with glimpses of greatness bursting forth. Even after a full season, there is still a sense of aimlessness and hesitancy about Chibnall's new low-key style, unlike the 11th hour, which burst forth full of drive and confidence. Davis and Moffat display their respective mission statements for the show in their first stories. I still have no clear idea what Chibnall's vision for the show is, other than to downscale it and emphasise emotion and relatability. I don't think I want Doctor Who to be that at the expense of everything else. Overemphasising stories where the true villains are human faults like greed, arrogance, religious intolerance and racism, whilst sidelining traditional Who-style villains and monsters has really imbalanced the show. Jodie got progressively stronger as the more emotionally connected and openly compassionate Doctor, but she still hasn't had a true Doctor moment, where she shows us the centuries-old Time Lord with a capacity for darkness or anger when pushed too far. She's absolutely capable of being a great Doctor, but the scripts, mostly Chibnall's, just aren't giving her a chance. The entire cast has good chemistry, but Bradley Walsh is the clear MVP of the season, always producing powerful scenes both with the other regulars and the guest actors. He has effectively provided the focal point of the season's overall themes of grief and loss. The new TARDIS, however, is a mess, making me long for Capaldi's multi-level Marvel every time I see it. Absolutely agree on that one, yeah. Chibnall's emphasis on small-scale stakes, emotion and social issues has dominated this season at the expense of excitement, scope and fun. Even the finale, while okay, was far less bombastic than in years past. The show has absolutely needed a rest from Moffat's grand narrative complexities, but the episodes just don't pop anymore in terms of great dialogue, variety or thrills. I'll never stop watching, but I hope it can again become truly compelling. Thank you, Gary. And we've also got one final breaking one, which Richard's going to read out right now. Isn't that right, Richard? And from a new contributor to the podcast, Ian. And how old's Ian? Uh, well, it says here, from the pen of Ian Levine, age 63. Okay, hello, yeah. Ian, if you're listening. For the last ten weeks, I have kept my thoughts about the current Doctor Who totally private. I now feel it's time to speak at last. To say I am totally underwhelmed is the understatement of all time. <laughs> all time. It was so bland... A forgettable, talentless yawn-fest. I can find no better word than meh to sum up this drab series. For a brief moment at first, I thought I liked it. Until I got punch drunk from its tedious, boring, uninspired blandness. The Rosa Parks episode worked for me, but the rest sent me to sleep by their sheer averageness. Dire scripts, boring rubbish overall. Political correctness gone totally mad. Chibnall, worst writer ever. Worst of all time. These were like the first series of Torchwood, but worse. <laughs> <laughs> Easily so, the, so the fourth series of Torchwood then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Easily the blandest season finale ever in 55 years. He needs to watch the Armageddon Factor. Exactly, again. yeah. <laughs> Plus, it took him nearly two years to make a lousy ten episodes. Now we have no more episode on Christmas Day anymore. I don't think that's actually Chris Chibnall, but... You know, no, no. 
But you're in a good rant here, so... And looky here. Whoop-dee-doo. Now there's no series at all in 2019 at all. We are fucked. Every way we turn. A disgrace. JMT was better. Way, way better. He's <laughs> <laughs> Ian Levine. Ian Wow. When I compare this crap to Blink or Journey's End, I just want to cry. People did not appreciate Russell T Davies or Stephen Moffat enough. And now look what the fuck we ended up with. Start again, BBC. You raped my first love. <laughs> oh, oh my God. So slightly Ian, extreme. Ian's usual subtle reaction. <laughs> yes. Yes. And to which I see a reply from one of the groups saying, we're fucked every way we turn is your new motto for 2018. <laughs> Look, I agree with Ian on some of his points. I think he's overstating it a bit. I don't agree with others. I think there are far worse seasons out there. I think there are far blander stories out there. Um, this comment about the political correctness, I don't understand. I've seen it around. If by political correctness you mean racism is bad and religious intolerance is bad and you know treating women equally is good yeah. that's not political correctness I think if you think that's political correctness you've really you know missed out on the 21st century somehow <laughs> um, I don't think this show is politically correct it's just correct yeah. but frankly I, no, I just think that's a nonsense criticism Mm. A bit yes. extreme, I thought, especially with the... Uh, From Ian? Yeah. Never. Yeah. No. Yeah. He is very passionate. Yeah. He is, he is slightly passionate, but uh, I did put a tweet out uh, and said, anybody want to send us any messages while recording? We've had one, which is our usual hit rate, isn't it, Rob? Uh, Jed Sweeney. <laughs> it's not me this time. It's not you, actually. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're sitting right next to me. Uh, Jed Sweeney, Karnakad, uh, says, in keeping with fandom tradition that has been in place since J&T was producer, I like to say, Tubnal out. So there you go. <laughs> Before we wrap up and go our separate ways, uh, we're going to have a quick uh, overview on what we've been watching. So, Dave, do you want to kick it off? Well, I actually have watched very little television during the course of this year, and what I have watched has been catching up on series from you know, previous, you know, I've mm. seen the second seasons of stuff. But I have seen 49 movies this year. Wow. And oh, I, thought oh. I, I thought I might, well, and that's so far, I've still got mm-hmm. a couple of weeks, and I thought I just might mention some of my, my, my favourites that people yeah. might want to go out and get. So, um, I was a big fan of Lady Bird, which got a number of Oscar nominations, mm-hmm. a very good piece of drama. Uh, three Billboards Outside Happy Missouri. Oh, yes. Excellent yes. movie, good. really good cast, really yeah. well done. Love, Simon, a lovely little rom-com yeah. that um, happened out there. The first mainstream release with a gay main character. Yeah. So, big deal there. Uh, first Man, I think a lot of fans yeah, of Doctor Who will appreciate yeah, that. It's a good. really well-made movie. Yeah. That's all about the first man on the moon. Yeah. Um, beautifully shot. Mm. And it really just demonstrates to you, you know, these were guys going to the moon basically in a tin can with a couple of, you know, 60s computers. Like, this this isn't what we think of as space. It's camera. amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I know you're a fan of this one, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. Rounds out my number five. That is a phenomenally good movie. Yes. Um, I accept, as, as we've discussed, that the timelines have been um, altered. altered for narrative reasons. Yeah. You know, there songs now and then. <laughs> <laughs> Clara goes back to save. Save And a couple of other ones. Look, I was really impressed by um, Avengers Infinity War. I'm not you know, a massive Marvel fan, mm. but that was really good. Ready Player One, if you're a fan oh, yeah. of 80s nostalgia, as I know most of us are. <laughs> yeah. um, That's my record. You know, that was really good. I enjoyed Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. Boy Erased was a little movie that I thought was really touching, really worth checking out. Crazy Rich Asians, yeah. really fun movie. That was good. Um, the Exception was a movie with Christopher Plummer as the deposed Kaiser Wilhelm living in exile in Belgium um, before World War II. And that's a really lovely little piece. 
Solo, I thought it was fun. I mean, Richard, we did a special on the Doctor Who show about yeah, this. We, we said we had fun. Uh, a Simple Favour was really good. And Lean on Pete, I really enjoyed it as well. And Black Panther, of course, can't go without. Yeah. So I just thought there were some really good movies this year. And look, I've watched some television. Um, I've caught up on stuff like 13 Reasons Why. I'm trying to catch up on stuff like um, Lost in Space. Mm. But actually, it's been movies this year more than anything that I've enjoyed. Mm, very good. So some suggestions from me. Very good. Over to you, Rob. Uh, well, I too have been going through a bit of an 80s nostalgia kick. Um, I haven't watched as much television as I would have liked, but I will recommend one TV show called um, American Vandal, which is available on... The two seasons are available on Netflix. Apparently Netflix has cancelled it, so I'm sure it'll appear later. It is a mockumentary... Uh, by two, uh, a couple of high schoolers in in, uh, in America, and it um, it's definitely played for laughs uh, with a bit of heart throughout, and it's uh, it's, it's very good value. Um, as I said before, I haven't been watching too much in the way of television, and I haven't seen many movies at all. It's just um, the perils of being a father means um, <laughs> you can't get out of the house too often. So I've been um, going through an '80s uh, highlights of a reading. Um, I've gone through and read some classic Stephen King books from the 80s so I'm halfway through it I finished off The Shining um, so there's been some classic Stephen King there he uh, well the start of it is a bit problematic with regards to his, uh, the, the first victim who's a gay character uh, yeah no not necessarily the, the way to go and omitted from the movie uh, understandably although the character is in there he's just um, different you don't know unless you told that it's him oh okay yes. there you go All apparently right. he is in there yes All right, I'll keep an eye out for that uh, I've made a start on a couple of David Gemmell uh, novels uh, and uh, the Stephen uh, Donaldson's first uh, novel, Lord Fowl's Bane, uh, another classic. So I've just been sort of catching up. I think as I get older, I look, I'm looking back to stuff that I enjoyed when I was younger. Uh, so that's about me. Nostalgia is very powerful and very and very profitable these days as well. Um, yes. Uh, I've been watching some TV shows uh, which haven't been Doctor Who. I've uh, started watching Peaky Blinders, which uh, has been on my hit list to watch for a while and I'm thoroughly enjoying that. Me and my wife are whizzing through that show up to season two now very well cast beautiful production values rock music over gangster scenes from the early 1900s what what could possibly go wrong good cast love it so it's, it's been really good uh i've been addicted to that uh, show making a murderer uh yes uh have pity on me it's good it's a very interesting though uh, in terms of uh, forensic uh and forensic evidence and how the american justice system doesn't work uh, Safe I've watched on Netflix that's actually quite good bit of a drama there Bodyguard the latest Jed uh, Mercurio series that was really good yeah the whole of Britain's been sort of head over heels over that one haven't yeah they? it was yeah. very yeah, very well done really and um, everybody's saying that uh, the guy who played the, the the lead in that I can't remember his name he played Rob Stark and you know, he's the next Doctor allegedly they're not going to go for it he's going to be the next James Bond who knows this week um, Man in a High Castle series 3 I'm still rocking through that and I started watching a comedy on Netflix called Sick Note which has uh, Nick Frost in it and Rupert Grint so uh, yeah yeah, Man in the High Castle series three is on my Christmas list mm. as in, to watch over the breaks. So yeah, it's very that. good. Very yeah, it's very, Rufus. Uh, what's his name? Rufus. Oh, oh, yeah, really good. Yeah, he's yeah. really good. I'm surprised he hasn't been in Doctor Who yet. Um, I should probably mention Russell T Davies' series of very English scandal. Oh yeah, that was yes. very. Good. That was phenomenal. Nah, that was good, yeah. fantastic. Yes, yes, yes very Hugh good. Grant, yeah. Hugh Grant. Take a bow. Yeah, and Ben Wishaw. Yeah, and Ben Wishaw was. Good I think too. I think we've all enjoyed that one. Yeah, yeah, it was very good. 
and Richard. Well, I'm probably going to be the, the change regular here. I haven't actually watched an awful lot this year, I don't think. Um, You've been too busy editing podcasts. Yes, I have. I'm doing a lot of podcast editing. I've watched a lot of Blake 7. <laughs> uh, That's okay. Last, yeah, that, that, which has actually been great going back and watching them again, I have to mm. say. I also watched a lot of the goodies, strangely <laughs> enough, too. Uh, yes, so other than that, I went through the Netflix superhero series and probably should do because they've just about all been cancelled now I think yes they have been well, yeah, yeah. Punisher's the only one they haven't announced uh, the cancellation I couldn't for. make it past episode one of Iron Fist series two I so can't do this anymore. no well Iron Fist both series weren't very good but no. Um, no. I must be even, even Kevin Smith struggled to praise Iron Fist yeah um, I have to say pretty much all those Netflix series really suffered from second season-itis I think I don't think any of them really had a great second series. No, uh, I've heard Daredevil season three. Oh, I see Daredevil. Yeah, well, I was going to say I have started Daredevil series that. three. That is that's so much yeah. better I than series. Because yeah, well. the problem with Daredevil two was that by far the most interesting thing was D'Onofrio and the Punisher. Mm. Um, really, the Electra storyline just really left me quite cold. Yeah, but but series three has been really yeah. good. Daredevil. Yeah, and, and look, I, that too. Yeah, and look, I'm hoping maybe Jessica Jones 3 will be better than Series 2 because I didn't get a lot out of that either. No, no. Um, which is a shame because I thought Series 1 was really good. Mm. But uh, no, I've, I've sort of worked my way through those. I did start watching The Sandbaggers, sort of classic British spy series, um, successor to Callum. I must admit, that's a great series. Mm. I'm really enjoying that. And on the movies front, I think I probably really needed some of the big blockbusters when we did Solo. Yes. And, uh, and a shame, unfortunately, I thought that was really left open. A sequel for that could have been really good, but unfortunately they knocked that on the head, So, yeah. uh, which is a shame, because now you've sort of got all of the stuff you have to do with Han Solo. Mm. You actually could have told a really good story in the second one. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. I thought it was good. Um, I didn't mind it. Yeah. I, I actually don't know anybody who saw it who didn't enjoy it. Mm. There are just a lot of people who didn't give it a chance, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. And of course, Infinity War, and because I've got an 11 year old, he is super excited for uh, Infinity War 2 in a few months. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. The trailer dropped, was it yesterday? Ah, uh, yes, new trailer yeah. dropped. Uh, we've got Captain Marvel, of course, before that. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I did go also go and see Ant Man and the Wasp. That was all. That, that was all right. That was fun. Yeah. So, no, a lot of my spare time at the moment is actually taken up with editing podcasts, so um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to continue in 2019. Why do you think I mean. we stopped? <laughs> yeah, the recording is great. The editing is not so great. It's, no, it does, it, does, it does break lesser men. But yes. uh, yeah, keep going. Keep yeah, going. but we have actually still got another podcasting project uh, up on blocks at the moment, which we will get to in the new year. We will unveil that Ooh. when the time is right, Ooh. at the appropriate juncture. Exciting! Exciting! <laughs> exciting! Actually, I wouldn't mind. Actually, Star Trek Discovery starts next. Next month, I think, too, the second season of that. So, okay. Yeah, okay. I quite like that. I thought it was good. I enjoyed parts of it. I thought Jason Isaacs was the best thing in it. Oh, I, yeah, he was great. Yeah, uh, I thought it was good. Yeah. It was a non-Trekkie. Mm. Trekker. Trekker, I should say. Uh, you know, sort of casual interest in it. I, mm. I thought yeah. it was much better than some of the... I, I thought it wasn't great Trek, but as expensive-looking sci-fi, it was yeah, very good. Exactly, mm. yeah. All right, should we wrap this up then? Dave, Richard, thank you very much again for joining us on our annual Christmas podcast. Always a pleasure, thank you. Thank no, you. for having us. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Rob and I will potentially be back sometime next year to, uh, if you know, if I lose my job again and Rob's uh, had an injury and I'm uh, morphine, we'll, we'll definitely do something. But uh, Rob and Dave have, def- have got to do their religion podcast at some point so yes we, um, we, did, we did politics in who a couple of years ago and yeah you've got to do who is um scripted ready to record <laughs> yeah so once those two boys uh, get themselves aligned uh we'll, we'll get that episode out but we'll we'll be back next year won't we rob uh maybe We'll be back next year, won't we, Dave? If it's an excuse to read some more target novels, why not? Absolutely. So yes, yes we'll all be back next year. So I'd like to wish you and your families a very safe and happy Christmas. So 
good luck for 2019. And if you're missing the Doctor Who Christmas special this year, you can always go back and listen to The Feast of Stephen, which is still the best Doctor Who Christmas special of all time. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. And uh, the new version's got River Song in it, so... <laughs> <laughs> yes, Clara's actually behind the police desk. <laughs> yeah, she's actually, yeah, she's replaced Blind Blessed. So, uh, on that bombshell, I've been Mark. I've been Rob. I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Keep punching! Santa in the balls. <laughs> listen to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.